Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine and the AEM Education and Training Journal. I'm your host, Dr. Gita Pensa, and this is what we've got for you today. Knowledge and skills decay is a well-known phenomenon after our postgraduate training in emergency medicine. So to maintain competence, especially for high stakes and life-saving procedures, physicians are required to participate in continuing professional development. That professional development can take many forms with varying degrees of success. So today, we are looking at new ways of ensuring lifelong procedural competence in pediatric emergency medicine with a paper in AEM Education and Training entitled Impact and Effectiveness of a Mandatory Competency-Based Simulation Program for Pediatric Emergency Medicine Faculty. First author, Dr. Jonathan Peary, is here with us to discuss it. Dr. Peary is a staff physician and medical educator in the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine and professor at the University of Toronto, Canada. He is the director of the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Simulation Program, and his clinical interests are in the resuscitation of acutely ill or injured children and the management of febrile infants and children at risk for serious or invasive bacterial infection. He is also a technology enthusiast, promoting the use of technology to improve clinical practice through the use of online and mobile applications. We're excited to have him here with us on the podcast and make sure to read the full article, which is available open access from the publisher for a limited time. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Peary. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So the introduction to your paper states that, quote, Knowledge and skills decay is a well-known phenomenon after postgraduate medical training. Uh, And being a number of years out myself, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it sort of strikes fear into my heart, but it probably is true. Um, And we do have continuing professional development now and uh, maintenance of certification now. Let's talk about that first. Like, What are the pros and cons of these continuing professional expectation programs? Well, the pros are is that there is some element of, um, Mm. you know, accountability that one needs to keep up with one's practice. But the the main, um, I guess, drawbacks are is that it's somewhat learner driven and the content is uh, not always at the level that uh, I think um, we always need it to be. So for example, in um, emergency medicine, which is, you know, I'm in pediatric emergency medicine, Mm -hmm. um, some of the critical skills that we need to maintain are resuscitation and procedural skills. And if you were to, you know, get your credits um, in Canada, it's the Royal College uh, Maintenance of Certification Program. There is elements of uh, coursework and simulation that count towards your um, overall maintenance of certification. But how much you do in those areas is really up to the individual. Um, yes, you've got to have so many credits, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, you're covering the right thing. So for example, the pediatric um, advanced life support course is a, you know, a course that a lot of um, emergency departments might mandate of their staff, but it's a fairly mm-hmm. basic course and it doesn't always hit the, you know, the higher level, um, uh, high risk and, and low frequency type scenarios that we might need to deal with. Um, and so, you know, th- that's one 
aspect of um, MOC that I think is 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 missing. Um, and it, it was hit home when we reviewed our um, Insightu program, which which was really I thought a you know a very robust um, program, and, and most disciplines now have Insightu programs, and we run these weekly. and And when we did a review um, and, and published our our data, we found out that one of you know it was a small print finding, but even though we have um, simulations every week. On an individual basis, a faculty member may only um, have one or two of these per year. And so the question is, is that enough to maintain your skills? We have 15 or 16 different scenarios that we run every week. Every um, you know six months, we might do one or two of those scenarios. So the likelihood an individual is going to cover uh, you know the, the breadth of their specialty is very unlikely um, with with the combination of either, you know, life support courses or inside you programs. So we felt we needed something that was more rigorous, more um, all-encompassing and, um, and had higher stakes, so to speak. Okay. Well, let's talk now briefly about CBME or competency-based mm-hmm. medical education and uh, simulation and how that fits into current structures for skills retention. So this was um, this was a really important part of the program, and it was happening at the same time that postgraduate training competency programs were uh, coming into um, effect um, in, in the United States and in Canada, and of course uh, worldwide. And I felt that our faculty, um, if we were to train our trainees to the best that they could be, we needed to be the best we could be, and so. Um, it wasn't merely enough to be competent, um, you know, for the five or six or seven years or how many ever years you do in training, and then to not have the same competency requirements for the rest of our uh, rest of our uh, train uh, rest of our um, careers. And so CBME ensures that um, not only you know are we keeping up our skills, but we're keeping them up at a level that. Um, would make us competent physicians and um, over a much longer time period, you know, over the course of 30 or so years. So competency Mm -hmm. really is not specific to our postgraduate training programs. It's really something that we all need to strive for. And especially in the Mm -hmm. acute care disciplines where, um, you know, obviously uh, mistakes can have significant impact on patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. All right. So enter your study. What question were you hoping to answer with your study? So this was um, our second paper, and it was basically to look at different levels of Kirkpatrick's um, hierarchy. Um, so uh, we wanted to find out, you know, was the content um, meeting our faculty's needs? So that was a survey and faculty perceptions um, at, you know, at the lower level of Kirkpatrick, but um, very important, like how was this program different than any other programs? What were the skills that were most beneficial? Where were the gaps? Um, and what were the barriers and facilitators to their participation? So that was one of the core tenets. We also wanted to know, you know, how successful are people? Are, 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 are they are they all competent? Are they incompetent? What was what was <laughs> what was the range? You know, like were we achieving what we had hoped to um, get out from the program? And then we mm. wanted to see whether or not the skills were translating into another environment. So a little higher up the level of Kirkpatrick's hierarchy, 
Um, and so we wanted to see whether some of these um, skills were translated into the into the in situ environment, into our already pre-existing um, uh, simulation program. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, can you give us a description of the CBME program? So first and foremost, it, 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 it's a it's a single word, but it's an important one. It's mandatory. So we make sure that <laughs> all the all the faculty do this. And so. Um, uh, Anyone who's working on the acute side of our eMERGE department, so there's different sort of um, zones in any emergency department, and some of the lower zones are not our full-time faculty and they're not managing you know, traumas and resuscitation. So anyone who's on that acute side would be um, required to, to annually participate. Secondly, um, we had to decide, uh, you know, what was the content? We had to, you know, what were the core skills that we wanted to ensure faculty um, uh, acquired and kept their skills up for. Um, and so we initially started with procedural skills and resuscitation skills, and then we added in point of care ultrasound or POCUS, since this was an emerging um, skill required of all our faculty. Um, and then we um, and then we had to, um, you know, develop a curriculum. And so initially we used Kern's uh, model of curricular development. We did some um, uh, needs assessments based on rural college uh, requirements of the of the subspecialty of pediatric emergency medicine, and then for resuscitation, we we looked at our in situ curriculum and then looked at other cases that were continually coming up either for M and M or critical incident review, um, and um, developed a committee essentially of uh, medical experts, simulation experts, and content experts to define the. Uh, content of the resuscitation uh, program. Mm -hmm. um, and then another big piece of the program, which I think is was essential, um, was our asynchronous um, learning that occurs prior to coming. Initially, we developed a, a, a simulation-based uh, um, website um, with modules for each station um, that had uh, core learning material, videos, it included the checklists and the standards that we required for each of those stations. And um, and then more recently, we've actually uh, started to transition to a newer platform called Affinity Learning, which actually is even more interactive and um, um, has been very well received. So I think this asynchronous component is, is really important. Um, and then within the actual you know, skills component of things, we used, you know, state, you know, stated, I call it state of the art, but basically, you know, the expectations of simulation methodology that is um, accepted throughout our community. So for example, in procedural skills training, we use deliberate practice and rapid cycle um, uh, methodology to achieve competency in resuscitation, we use stop, pause, debriefing, um, and then repeat scenarios in order to ensure that people acquire uh, the, the relevant skills, knowledge, and attitudes that they need to manage uh, those cases. And then, and then the last step, which is crucial, is is the competency piece. So we have both checklists and global rating scales. Um, in the case of procedures, these are combined and called OSATs. And so we used um, modifications of existing OSATs that were in the literature. And then we used our checklists and a simplified global rating scale for uh, resuscitation. Um, and um, basically we run this um, 
uh, annually. Uh, we get half the faculty in the first half of the year and half in the second, because uh, mm -hmm. someone's got to run the eMERGE department while we're running, while we're doing <laughs> these. Um, and, you know, we split it up into half days. So, you know, technical and, and um, focus is on one afternoon and resuscitation is on the other. And um, each year we review the content and ensure that um, we're keeping up to date with uh, current, you know, um, issues that are coming up or in the case of new guidelines. So for example, not during this study period, but in the last year, we, uh, the hospital up, updated its code airway um, algorithm. And, uh, and so we created a case as well as a procedure for front of neck access that now all our faculty have to do. And I think that's kind of core component. Maybe I, you know, I, I may, may have stressed it earlier, but it's a really important piece of things. We all have to go through it. It's not just right. random, you know, uh, you know, the learner right. decides, oh, I want to, you know, do this or, oh, I happen to get Because that most case. of us would not. <laughs> no, no. And in fact, that's the case. You know, like, I think people are well-meaning. They, they want to get their maintenance of certification. Yeah. So they go about it and they, they check the boxes and they get their numbers. But it's somewhat haphazard. It's learner-driven. And it's not always the content um, that you need. And at the end of it, you don't know if people are competent. You don't know if mm -hmm. they've really acquired the skills and whether they can translate them into the into the real clinical arena. No, super true. All right. So um, tell us a little more about the study design, your methods, and uh, the outcome measures that you were particularly examining. So we used a, a logic model for um, the overall um, curricular development. Uh, we initially had used um, Kearns for the development of the the cases and the needs assessment piece of things, but the the logic model helped to um, sort of create an overall blueprint. Um, and essentially, there was the three main pieces, which were faculty perceptions, um, the success rates of competency, and um, and looking at team scores within the uh, in situ environment. So whether or not our uh, CBME program augmented and um, helped in that arena. And then long-term, um, sort of in that sort of three-year time frame, is to look at the faculty perceptions of what was working, what were the skills gaps that were identified, um, and some of the facilitators and barriers to participation. Okay, so let's talk about your results. Uh, so first, tell us about uh, CBME program participation and achievement of competency. What did you find there? So initially, excellent um, participation. There was a lot of enthusiasm. And, um, and so we reported those in a previous uh, study. In our study, we looked more specifically into competency rates. And uh, we found that uh, we had extremely high competency rates in sort of the 95 to 100 uh, range. Most of those that did not achieve competency were because of time constraints. So either they were not able to, uh, you know, achieve the skills within the the time frame of the of the course, or in some cases, people had to leave early for clinical um, demand. So to get to get to a shift, for example. Um, so I think overall we were around ninety seven percent in our in our competency. Uh, rates. The, the, the design is set up for success. So because people can practice, um, let's say on the technical side, until they achieve competency, 
most people, if they've done their pre-reading, have come in, practiced properly, they should, you know, assuming they have this, the requisite skills, um, meet their competencies. Resuscitation uh, is a little bit harder in the sense that it's a team. We used a team competency global rating scale, and so um, most teams on the second run through will achieve competency. And so again, we receive you know we've got very high uh, competency rates with team uh, functioning. Um, and so you know overall, it was you know um, very well done um, by by participants. Okay, so uh, how about regarding the team performance? So this was an interesting part, and and um, you know I think the main positive finding, the main uh, you know correlation was sustained improvement in adherence to guidelines and standards of care, sort of the medical model uh, component, or the and you know the the the, the medical expert component, I guess of of the of the skills the. Other components of the team scale, such as communication and the overall scores, remained constant over that three-year time period. And in reflecting on uh, why that might happen, we realized that the CBME course is primarily geared towards physicians. Although the nurses do come for the resuscitation component, it's not a mandatory component for them. And the number of nurses that come through, and, and, and certainly RTs as well, is not the same as the in-situ environment. So scores don't always necessarily correlate um, when that happens. And then secondly, uh, the, the types of cases that are in the in-situ environment are somewhat different. They overlap, but, they're, but they're, they're different than the content of the CDME. So I think if we were to repeat this study in a different manner, I would use cases that had better overlap and in particular, let's say, going back to, let's say, a code airway scenario, we would look at running the CBME course um, with the introduction of code airway and then importing it into the in situ environment and then looking at those specific cases so that there was a, a much higher correlation between, uh, between the two. Um, but it was very important to see that, in fact, the... Um, adherence to the guidelines and or standards of care for those particular cases did improve and had um, sustained uh, change over time. Mm, fantastic. Okay. And then finally, how about faculty perceptions? So I, I wasn't surprised um, by our findings. Faculty um, were very, very favorable about the course. And we knew this going in because we get the verbal feedback as it's happening. It, it's a unique environment to be able to work, you know, you work in, for example, procedures, you tend to work in pairs um, or in threes. You can brainstorm with each other. You get to share your tips and tricks. You have obviously facilitators, um, leaders um, with content expertise who are obviously giving their input. And so it's a very rich learning environment. And so People come out of it and verbally tell you that was great. It was so good to, you know, hear how they did this. Or I really, you know, didn't realize for this um, resuscitation that we should, you know, do this before we do that. So just that that rich um, learning environment was was um, was something that 
you know, people talked about at the time. And so it wasn't surprising that we found overall um, um, satisfaction rates were in the range of like 4.5 to 5 out of 5. Um, we also found uh, certain areas or content areas that were important to uh, consider for future um, courses. Um, and again, the um, facilitators and barriers were not surprising either. So the facilitators were the course design, the, the uh, competency component, the expert knowledge of those that are f- facilitating. So those were all the positives. And the barriers were mostly around, you know, the scheduling. And, and for me, running the course is getting all the instructors and, and the organizational piece. And, and this is um, one of the things that I think smaller programs will struggle a little bit with is, you know, how, how do you implement such a large program and get buy-in from everybody um, in order to run it? And so that was an important piece to describe. And so I think in order for people to replicate what we do, it was important just to describe that. And so that's what we got out of the uh, survey. Fantastic. Um, so how does this program, how would you say it addresses the current gaps that we have in MOC and continuous uh, continuing professional development? Yeah. So I think we've touched on a lot of them. I think, um, you know, this, this, type of um, program is best suited for acute care, acute care dis- disciplines. So emergency medicine, intensive care, perioperative, you know, anesthesia, surgical, technical uh, specialties, um, high-risk OB-GYN. These are the specialties where um, I think a a CBME type program that has a very well-designed curriculum that's designed by experts with the input of of the um, clinicians that are in those disciplines is a a huge step forward um, and and, and addresses many of the sort of gaps that are in in traditional MOC uh, requirements. The competency piece of it is is huge. And I um, I think ensuring that when people come out of a program that they've not just had passive learning and they're they're just taking it in, but they're actively engaging and meeting um, requirements. Um, and I and, and of course this course counts for MOC because it's simulation and so you still get your credits, um, but uh, they're kind of credits on steroids, I guess would be the <laughs> way I would put it. Um, you know, because they really are at an they're at a higher level. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, so what comes next? So I've got, got some plans, uh, some of which are already in the works. Um, so we're currently working on, at least on the procedural side, a uh, plan to move from competency to mastery. Um, so I think mm-hmm. this is a big piece of one of the future parts of this. Mm-hmm. So the competency scale goes from you know zero to five, uh, where three is competent and five is mastery. Um, and I think on average, if my memory serves me correctly, I think our overall scores were sort of in the four to four point four range. Um, but it would be really nice to push that far uh, as far towards number five, towards mastery, if we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also looking at better ways of uh, assessing team leader skills. So we talked about team skills. 
Um, but we also need to assess individual skills within a team. So there are a number of instruments out there. So we're probably going to be uh, looking at uh, a more validated tool for assessing uh, leadership skills within within resuscitation training. Uh, I really would love this to become more of a national program. So I have a number of colleagues in simulation that are interested and are doing sort of bits and pieces of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be really nice to standardize it across the country. Um, certainly, obviously, starting with Peds Emerge Medicine, but it would be wonderful if this got translated into other uh, acute care disciplines as well. And when I speak to other colleagues in other disciplines and I tell them about our program or when we present it at international conferences, they're like, wow, this is great. This is what we need. So I think um, to to broaden the, the, the scope beyond our local would be great. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, we need some outcome data. You know, we need some, re you know, we need to get to that fourth level of Kirkpatrick where we're looking at um, patient outcomes. And, and fortunately, in pediatric emergency medicine, we don't have a high mortality rate within the eMERGE like, like you might in an ICU setting. So we've got to look at other metrics, you know, so adherence to um, AHA guidelines for cardiopulmonary resuscitation or clinically relevant things like um, ICU admission rates or, for example, in trauma, you know, we have an initiative to get patients with traumatic brain injury out of the trauma bay within 20 minutes because we know that that reduces um, uh, mortality and, and long-term um, morbidity. And so those sort of metrics need to be um, tracked and to see whether or not some of the programs that we're implementing are actually impacting on patient care. Mm -hmm. We we have, we've always, you know, in medical education, we're always feeling that it, that we, that we are, um, but, it's harder to to prove, and so we want to work our way up that uh, that hierarchy and show that we're actually improving patient care. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today and uh, for your work, and we'll look for the next paper. All right. Well, thanks so much, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today and and to talk about uh, the the program and um, and maybe we'll cross paths again sometime in the future. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.